am just curious how many of you in the last couple of weeks have gotten sick. Seems to be a lot of stuff going around. Okay, that's about what I thought. So we're about three minutes away from our Christmas meal on Monday. And I thought, what is in my throat? Oh man. By the time I went to bed that night, I thought, I'm definitely sick. And this is very unusual because usually my kids get it and then they give it to me. I was the first one to get it this year, and now they're wiped out with it back home. So I will make do. If my voice sounds a little bit funny today, I did have a little bit of laryngitis earlier this week, but hopefully, Lord willing, I'll be okay. We'll return to John when the students get back, but for today, I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 13, and I want to preach a sermon titled, Incarnation and the Future. Incarnation and the Future. Hard to believe tomorrow is January. Next week, I think most of our students will be back in town, and the school year will begin again, and uh, everything will pick up speed. So enjoy a little bit of Christmas break that you have left. Christmas is one of our two annual celebrations of the Incarnation. Christmas is the celebration of the humanity of God in the virgin womb. And Easter is the celebration of the humanity of God from the virgin tomb. God took a body and He kept it forever. God became what He made in order to redeem what He made. So what does the Incarnation have to do with the future? And to answer that question, I want us to go back to the past. One of the most important figures in the early history of the church was a man named Eusebius. He was born in the year 260. He was later made Bishop of Caesarea. This is in the north of Israel. He was a pastor and a theologian who wrote extensively But he is best remembered for his work as a church historian. Eusebius lived through the bitter days of the Diocletian persecution of the church. That was the last great Roman persecution, the most intense persecution of the early Christian church. Eusebius himself was imprisoned for a time for his faith. He also witnessed the Edict of Toleration in the year 311, which granted Christians freedom across the empire. Eusebius also witnessed the coming of Constantine to his throne. And in fact, he is one of our most important sources on the conversion of Constantine to Christianity. He is also one of our favorite sources on the Edict of Milan, which makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. He also has a great deal to say about the widespread growth of Christianity and the summoning of the great church councils beginning in the year 325. All that to say, there is hardly a more important source than Eusebius for the early church. There was so much of significance that actually occurred during his lifetime that he was an eyewitness to. Now, at the center of his world is a man named, of course, Constantine. Constantine was the emperor. And in a biography of Constantine, Eusebius writes the following... People now lost all fear of their former oppressors and celebrated brilliant festivals. Light was everywhere. All 
all men who once were dejected greet each other with smiling faces and sparkling eyes. With dance and song and city and country alike, they gave honor first to the supreme God as they had been instructed, and then to the pious emperor and his sons dear to God. Everywhere, the victorious emperor published humane ordinances and laws that reflected liberality and true piety. And so all tyranny was eradicated, and the kingdom that was theirs was preserved, secure, and undisputed. Well, his estimation is glowing, certainly more than Constantine deserved, but these were epic times. According to Eusebius, the Christianization of Rome, subsequent to the Edict of Milan, represented the final triumph of the church in the world. Those earlier Diocletian persecutions were but the birth pangs of a great tribulation that presaged the dawn of a new age. For Eusebius, Constantine was likely introducing to us a great Christian millennium. Now, Eusebius doesn't use these terms, but if John the Baptist introduced Christ's first coming, then Constantine introduced his second coming. That's the feeling that you get when you read Eusebius. We move forward one century. <clears throat> and find another pastor and theologian and also a prolific author. And he is contemplating the meaning of history while he sits at his study at a place called Hippo, North Africa. His name is Augustine. And doubtless he has read Eusebius and he knows the history of the early church. But something has gone terribly wrong. The Roman Empire, at least in the West, is crumbling. The book of Revelation had predicted the coming of the kings of the East. And Augustine, like everyone in the empire in those days, had heard of the ruthless Huns, fearsome horsemen from the East pressing their way into the empire. In 376, they had crossed the Volga River, and they kept pressing further and further into the West. Pressure from the Huns then forced other barbarian tribes like the Goths and the Vandals and the Franks to push their way down in the Roman Empire as well and over into England. In the year 410, Alaric the Visigoth marched on Rome and overthrew the garrisons of the city and looted the city for three straight days. Augustine died in the spring of 430. And when he died... Hippo, his city, was under siege by the Vandals. Shortly after his death, the Vandals burned his city, with the exception of his library and his church, thankfully. So it's in this context that Augustine, beginning in the year 410, wrote his enormously influential work, The City of God. How many have heard of The City of God? How many have read The City of God? Oh, several of you, more than I thought. Very good. This is a massive book, and it took you a long time to get through it. But at its heart is a Christian philosophy of history centered on the incarnation of God. Augustine wrote to a whole generation of Christians who were bewildered over the turn of events in the Roman Empire. You see, B.C.'s Christian millennium had ended abruptly. 
and Roman civilization now just lay in ruins all around them. What do we make of this? How are Christians supposed to live in a civilization in decline? How are Christians supposed to live in times of enormous uncertainty with the constant beat of war drums on the horizon? Well, these are two perspectives, and they do indeed offer us a kind of caution when it comes to our thinking about world events. How are we supposed to think about the world in which we live? Eusebius, on the one hand, is full of optimism. And there are all kinds of historians all through church history that are very, very optimistic about the future. Augustine is more pessimistic, even if he is, in my estimation, more balanced. And I suspect that many Christians today feel that our present times resemble more closely the days of Augustine than Eusebius. And Augustine reinforces the truth that God did indeed come into the world, that God did indeed come to give us history, I mean, give give history rather, some meaning, some ultimate outcome, some future, although at times it might be difficult to know what that might be. Augustine writes at a time when there was great uncertainty about the future of his civilization. So how are Christians supposed to operate within those kinds of environments? Well, his thesis in that contextual background is clear. This is my summary. According to Augustine, civilizations will rise and fall. But the fortunes of God's kingdom are not dependent on the success of any one civilization or nation or empire. And hopefully that's not a novel idea to you because I've mentioned this on previous occasions. This is really, really crucial though. Civilizations rise, civilizations fall, but God's kingdom is not dependent on any one nation or any one empire or any one emperor. It's not the way that it works. In Augustine's formulation of the Christian worldview, there are two kingdoms, two cities as he calls them, the city of God, or the kingdom of God, and the city of man, or the kingdom of man. And these histories, their histories, for the moment, are intertwined. However, the fortunes of the city of man The empires below rise and fall, but the empire of God just marches on right over the wreck of nations and empires. Now, in Augustine's day, Christians could not conceive of Christianity succeeding apart from Rome. Imagine that. Without a Roman empire, there's no future for the church. Likewise, Byzantine Christians throughout the Middle Ages could not conceive of Christianity apart from the great city of Byzantium or Constantinople. How does it survive without the great empire of Byzantium? It's not going to work. Likewise, reformers in the 16th century viewed Geneva or Zurich in Switzerland as the epicenter of the Christian faith, the epicenter of the movement that would not die. Likewise, German Lutherans saw Luther's reforms as a catalyst for change in the world. Without Germany, there's no hope for the world. 
In the 19th century in England, missionaries began traveling all across the globe. They came oftentimes to the vanguard of the great British Empire. Without the British Empire, said many Christians, there's no hope for the church. Imagine that. If the empire falls, there's no future. And I grew up hearing that without America, Christianity will fail. I was taught that. America has become the great epicenter of Christianity. America has become the great bastion of liberty. And if America doesn't keep the Christian light burning to the night, well then, there's no hope for Christ and His gospel. It all comes crashing down. This is why we have to have a very strong military. And this is why we have to make sure the stock market is really, really strong. Because somehow, Christianity and the American stock market are intertwined. It is America's manifest destiny to Christianize the world. And what Augustine would say to all of this is that this is nothing more than national hubris. Augustine's point is the fortunes of Christ's church do not depend on the fortunes of any empire or any nation or any people. It was never intended to work that way. Christ's kingdom will succeed because the Christ has permanently incarnated himself into humanity, and he has permanently resurrected to rule the nations from his throne. That's what was happening in the ascension. Christ's kingdom will succeed in the world because the king has permanently incarnated himself into the life of a new humanity, into the church that will not and cannot die. Christ has not incarnated himself into the life of any one nation. There is no chosen nation today, whether ethnic or geopolitical. Jewish nationalism perished, and the Jews acknowledge we have no king but Caesar. And that's why Peter says to the church, but you, the church, Jews and Gentiles, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The church is where God is ruling and reigning today. So Christianity, if you think about it, has no geographical or political epicenter. It's not supposed to. There is no center geographically to the Christian church. Now, early in Acts, the Jewish party wanted to keep control of the church bottled up there in Jerusalem. But it slipped quickly away to Antioch, and from there it began springing up all over the empire. The Roman church went on to try to consolidate the church under the authority of Rome. In fact, there is a man in Rome today who still claims to be head of the global church. Likewise, this happened with the Byzantine church. But the center of the church is not Rome, it's not Wittenberg, it's not Geneva, it's not London, and it's not Greenville, South Carolina. I was watching a video just a couple weeks ago with a professor who was speaking up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And of course, Grand Rapids is a great publishing house for Christianity. And he jokingly referenced the tendency they have up there, apparently, to view Grand Rapids as the center of Christianity. I didn't even know that. Well, this professor was a longtime professor at Wheaton, and he said, all the time I spent at Wheaton, we always thought we were the center of the globe. Right? Well, the center, my friends, is where? 
The center is Jesus Christ. That's the center. The church derives its life from His resurrection power. The church, empowered by Christ and His Spirit, goes into every nation, into every city, into every language group, into every cultural setting, into every people group all over the globe. That's Christianity. But the church cannot and never will be located or centered or headquartered in any one place. Jesus sits on a throne in heaven, not in any geographical location right here on earth. Church history, then, is the study of Christ's continuing incarnation and His people spread all over the globe. And this is the worldview that Augustine wants us to embrace. We don't come to a country or a city or a temple. All of that was destroyed in 70 A.D. We come permanently to the resurrected Jesus Christ. That's the center, if you want to find the center. Now, I have called this sermon, Incarnation the Future. And so far, all I've done is talk about the past. But let's remember something. If you believe that history is linear, as I do, the way the church always has, rather than cyclical, then the past was at one point in time the future. Right? The past was at one point in time the future. When you view history as a continuous line with a definite beginning, a central event, and a great consummation of the ages, the past and the future more or less merge along that line. So, what I have been talking about from our 21st century perspective as 21st century Americans is in fact the past, but actually this whole time I've been talking about the future. At least the future from the perspective of Jesus Christ. Everything we've been talking about is the future that Jesus saw. Eusebius, Augustine, all the way down to the present. Well, that was all future to Jesus. So again, when we look at history and the future this way, it's much easier to understand ourselves as part of a great story. A great story that began back in the past, but a story that continues right up to the present. That's how we think about history. And friends, we are not the end of history so far as I know, nor are we the destiny of the church. We are one chapter. We are perhaps a little paragraph. Maybe just a sentence in the larger story. No matter how small or how large our ministry is here at University Baptist Church, we are actually part of the greatest story in the universe. Maybe we're a sentence, but we're part of the greatest story in the universe. We are part of a story of a Savior who came to permanently incarnate Himself into the life of His creation. We are part of a story of a Savior who is forever growing the body of His church as it just marches on right into the future. And this is a story that should absolutely liberate us even if we live in uncertain times. Now, please understand, I love America. 
I have no hesitation about that. I love American history. I love watching America's greatest athletes compete in the Olympic Games. I am like totally pro-America when it comes to the Olympics. I love our great national parks, all right? And I'm not ashamed of that at all. And I'm sure that all of us feel that way about our native countries, and we should. There's nothing wrong with love of country. Why? Because Paul models that in Romans chapter 9. Paul loved his own country. Hatred for one's country is a vice, not a virtue. Jesus loved every tribe and tongue and nation. Well, that includes mine. If he's going to love it, I have to too. Right? But I can and I should be willing to identify and repudiate the vices of my own country. And there are many. Because my first loyalty is to the kingdom of God. And again, Paul modeled this for us. He loved Israel, but he was not above condemning Israel. And we all have to be willing to do that. The fact is, we are part of a larger story, a far larger story, a kingdom of all saints from all ages, a kingdom of resurrected people who are living out the new life of Christ all over the globe. And we participate and the permanent incarnation of the resurrected king. So in that context, let's again look at Matthew 13. Did we turn there already? I had you turn there already. All right. And let me encourage you to read Matthew 13 as a passage which both concerns the past and the future, at least from our perspective. Now, Jesus is speaking here of what would happen in the future. He's speaking of his own future, right? What would happen beginning after his death in the first century and just roll on indefinitely till the end of time. But now as we read the passage, we are partially looking back to the past over the last 2,000 years that Jesus saw his future. And would you notice the parable of the weeds in verse 24? Matthew 13 and verse 24. Here Jesus will speak to us about a kingdom that he is going to go out and build. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the plants came up and bore grain... Then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with it. They're with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the grain and the wheat into my barn. Now in Matthew, Jesus goes about preaching his kingdom. This is not a theme that we've seen in John, but it's definitely a major theme in Matthew's gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. 
And in the final verse of Matthew, Jesus will commission His disciples to preach His gospel all the way until the end of time, to the edges of every continent, to the end of the world. Preach my kingdom to the very end. Now, the function of the kingdom parables, then, is to give us a glimpse of what things look like in between. So the king commissions his disciples. They preach to the very end. So what do things look like in between? That's the function of the kingdom parables. Now, this parable of the wheat and tares illustrates what we can expect to find out there in the kingdom, in the world all around us. Essentially, Jesus plants the seeds of his kingdom everywhere, every tribe and tongue and nation. And in Christianity, you will find true Christians or true sons of the kingdom growing up from that good seed all over the place. However, you should also expect to find false professors, weeds that mimic the true wheat. It should not surprise us. Jesus predicted it. And you can expect to find this mixed character of the kingdom of heaven until the end of the world, right up until the final harvest. And how do I know this is the correct interpretation? The answer is very simple. Jesus himself explains it. Look at verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. His disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Okay, here's his answer. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. And of course he commissions his disciples to do the same. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. All right? So that's Christ's own interpretation. Now, here's the point I am drawing from this terrible parable from for the time being. We, we live after Jesus, but we certainly live before the end of the world. Right? We haven't reached the end of the age, so we live somewhere in between. But in the mind of Jesus, what we call history and what we call future are, again, all part of this singular kingdom plan. He looked in the future. He saw much of what we now look back on. But Jesus has a great kingdom. And so here we are. We're somewhere out there in the field, and we're just trying to produce wheat for the harvest. We're all part of this greater story. It's very organic. The king is planning one great kingdom. And we are laboring here in Clemson, South Carolina, in our little corner. We're trying to bring about a harvest for the great king. That's our mission. Now, would you look back at verse 31, and let's locate a second parable. Verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. 
Now, in this case, Jesus does not explain this parable the way he does the previous one. But I suspect the meaning is clear enough. A grain of mustard seed is indeed quite small. But a small seed can become a great tree. In comparing the seed of the kingdom, Jesus is actually... Let me say it again. In comparing the seed to a kingdom, to the kingdom, Jesus is saying the kingdom will grow and grow and grow and grow. You can expect it to become quite large. It will begin small enough But don't be discouraged by that. It will one day become a great tree. Kingdom work is always like this. It starts small, and it just grows and grows and grows. This church was founded in 1977 with just 13 people, only one of whom is here today. But through the years, it has influenced hundreds and hundreds, possibly thousands of people through the years in its ministry here in Clemson. Wonder if those 13 original original people thought it would ever happen this way. Now, in John's Gospel, chapter 12, we won't turn there since you're familiar with it, we do have a fascinating cross-reference that really sheds more light on this parable. Jesus said in John 12 and verse 23, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So what does that mean? Well, contextually, we discovered the hour of his glorification actually refers to his death. The hour for the Son of Man to be glorified, to die, has come. And the following metaphor confirms it. Truly, truly, Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, the image here is really striking. It's very similar to what we've seen here in the two kingdom parables in Matthew. Both involve seeds, and both involve planting in the soil. Jesus is talking about his death. And Jesus is the one going about sowing the seeds into the soil. And Jesus is about to plant a mustard seed, a little tiny seed, and it's going to become a great tree. But what makes the whole kingdom work possible is the fact that according to John, he's actually going to plant his own humanity into the earth. He is planting his own life into the soil of his creation. And Jesus is going to take his incarnation into the grave, and there he will die. However, because he goes into the grave, Jesus assumes that he can now multiply. That's the image he gives us in John. He can multiply now and bear much fruit. But again, just notice how organic all this conversation is. The seed becomes more productive through death. It's like those hydrangeas that you cut back to that little desiccated brown stalk in the winter and the spring. Here comes all the blooms. At least that's how it's supposed to work. Mine never do. All right? But in an agricultural society like the first century, these images would have really resonated with people. Jesus constantly uses kind of organic earthly terminology to really describe his incarnation, his humanity. 
and he uses very similar terminology to describe his church, his church life that is rooted in him. We'll see this in John 15 uh, later this month, or I guess it'll be next month at this point, all right? But we are like these branches, and we are drawing nutrition from the vine. Or we are like individual members of a body over which he is the head. Or we are like a great tree that grows from the seed of his resurrection. So friends, when you put all of this together, there's a very clear picture that emerges. The church is a living organism that is connected to the life of the resurrected and permanently incarnated Savior. The church is a living organism connected to Christ. And that church lives on into the first century, into the second, the third, the fourth, and it grows, it advances, and it comes all the way down to the 21st century. And here we are today, still connected organically to the life of Jesus now resurrected. The fact is, you prune it back from time to time through the winter of persecution. What happens in the spring? It blossoms abundantly. You cut it back in one place through tribulation and martyrdom, and those runners just move underground. They spring up all over the place, like so many clandestine churches all around the world today. They blossom again where you thought Christianity was dead. The Hans press their way right into the empire. And they put pressure on those barbaric groups to loot and to burn churches and destroy them and to persecute Christians. And before long, guess what? Christianity begins to erupt all over the place among the barbarians. The Christians say, well, if they're going to invade us, might as well win them to Christ. Hudson Taylor and thousands of missionaries spread the gospel seeds all across China. Only to be finally driven out by Mao Zedong. The church was driven into prison and into exile. And in 1976, Mao Zedong's fourth wife, Yang Kuang, I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, pronounced that Christianity in China was dead. 1976, she said, is dead. If you want to find Christianity in China, you have to go to the museum, she said. It's now estimated the largest church in the world is, in fact, in China. Boy, was she wrong. She made the same fatalistic mistake in her thinking that so many others have done when they gloated over the death of the church. And that mistake is a failure to recognize that the church already died in the first century. It already died. The grain of wheat went into the ground and it died already. That is now resurrected to new life. And you cannot kill something that has already died and resurrected. That's impossible. You cannot kill something that has already died and resurrected. And so long as the vine is connected organically to Christ, it will not, it cannot die. It is resurrected already with Christ. You can no more kill the church then you can murder Christ a second time. But he died once and for all time. And in fact, it was Augustine's reading of Hebrews that convinced them of this truth. Over and over and over again, he saw this truth. Christ died once and for all time. That's not going to be repeated over and over and over again, the cycle. Once and for all time. And now the church participates in the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. 
And friends, there are places in the world today where Christianity appears to be dying. Did you know that in 1907, Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea, experienced a great revival? We can read about this. Jonathan Goforth was part of that movement that saw this great awakening in North Korea. Christianity spread all over that land. And today a cold winter has descended over that country. We know that. But if history and a few scattered sources tell us anything, Christianity will spring forth again. I have no doubt about that. Christianity today, as I pointed out previously, in Palestine is dying. It's dying of the long Israeli occupation. Political Zionism, which is not a Christian movement, has persecuted the Church of God that has persisted in the land of Christianity's birth since the first century. But if history tells you anything, Christianity will spring forth again. I have no doubt about that. You can't kill it. It is organically connected to the life of the resurrected Christ. So friends, where are we going with all of this? What does all this mean for us? Well, when you and I think about the future, don't disconnect it from the past. You don't want to think of the future as disassociated with the great kingdom parables that Jesus gave in the first century. You don't want to disassociate the future with the incarnate Savior's plan of redemption, which he launched in the first century. We're still part of the story. Jesus came into history to act decisively in time. And yes, he has ascended to heaven. That is true. But Jesus, from his throne in heaven, is still advancing his kingdom agenda. That's what we're doing all over the globe as we carry out the mission of the, uh, of the resurrected Christ. His kingdom is here. And I am convinced that it is still growing. I am convinced that it will continue to grow right up until the harvest. I am convinced that there are souls we won in Clemson, South Carolina in 2024. His body is still here. It's still growing. It's still thriving. So what are we going to do? The mustard seed is still, it's just, it's just pushing its life out there into the branches. And those branches just keep on growing. Weed is still being sown in parts of the world waiting for the harvest. Now, <clears throat> what are we supposed to do with all this? My intention today obviously has not been to get into a detailed discussion of eschatological events. All right? This really hasn't been a sermon on the traditional sermon on prophecy. I know better than to start that at this point. I, I, I think that you should wait until you're independently wealthy before you start that. Just, just kidding. All right. But, but some Christians become so, so vexed with obsessing over charting everything out in chronological sequence that they sort of miss the forest for the trees. You know what I'm talking about? This sort of constant obsession, like, well, what exactly is going to happen next? And how does this point of the future and I just want to leave us with this idea that, the, that, that, that what we're experiencing today is part of a grand story. It's the grand story of a Messiah who has invested his life in the death and the resurrection of a new humanity. And he will not fail to just carry on that mission to redeem his fallen creation right up until the end of time. And I do believe that the Rabbi Gamaliel got it right in Acts chapter 5. The Jews wanted to stamp out Christianity. They wanted to stamp out the efforts of the apostles to plant the church. And Gamaliel's sage advice was, if this is the work of God, there's no resisting it. Now, Paul thought he could, but there's no resisting this. 
So in that context, let me ask you to turn finally to Revelation chapter 7. And I just want to leave you here today with a really beautiful passage to contemplate. Revelation chapter 7. Before I do that, though, I just want to share a little bit of personal experience. I grew up in a very strong Christian home for which I'm very grateful. My parents love and serve the Lord. It was my, pre- it was my privilege to sit under preaching, the preaching of men who were orthodox in the faith. And I grew up in churches that could be called, would be called fundamental. I attended two different Christian schools, one in California and one in Colorado. And I had really, truly wonderful Sunday school teachers and Christian school teachers. And I think I mentioned this to you maybe eight or nine years ago. I can't recall. I've been here nine years. So <clears throat> Along the way, I, I really developed this incredible fear of the book of Revelation. I was actually terrified by a number of sermons and Sunday school lessons about the book. I was really terrified about the future. Maybe you kind of grew up that way as well. The culture that I grew up in gave me the distinct impression that the world was coming quickly to to an end, and it was horrific, and it was imminent, like I wasn't going to get out of high school. And I heard a great deal about the coming tribulation, and almost nothing so far that I can recall about a new creation, or the new Jerusalem that we find at the end of the Bible. To the best of my knowledge, I don't ever recall hearing anything that connected the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the eventual resurrection and restoration of the entire creation. I never had those two pieces put together in my mind. Maybe that's why I tend to emphasize that a lot around here, but those two pieces never came together for me. The incarnation, well, that was the virgin birth. Easter, that's something else. That's like the undoing of the incarnation, and then we just kind of give up for now and wait for Jesus to come back. Actually, it's all connected. (laughs) Jesus incarnated himself in his first resurrection, in, 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 in his virgin birth, and resurrected that humanity, and that is very closely associated with what's to come in the future. The resurrection king is returning to restore his whole creation. Now, I heard many, many sermons and much discussion about a person called the Antichrist from the book of Revelation, although that title is never actually mentioned in the book of Revelation, believe it or not. In college, I heard a great many prophecy experts, and one in particular that preached every year at Bible conference, And he preached about blood moons and red heifers and Gog and Magog and the Cold War and the European Union and Mikhail Gorbachev. And he seemed to find all those things in Revelation. And it really created in me this kind of terror of Revelation. But I really have no recollection from my youth, and I could be totally mistaken about this, but no recollection from my youth of any sermon or discussion about Jesus Christ in Revelation. Which is surprising because the first verse tells us the whole book is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's actually the word apocalypse. It's the apocalypse, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. That's revelation. And I was taught that Mikhail Gorbachev was ushering the tribulation. He might as well have been a tour of the Hun. And I had a high school teacher who claimed that we would not survive the 1980s. You say, are you that old? No. He told us that in the 1990s when I was in high school. I, I kid you not. He said, I don't know how we're going to survive the 80s, but here we are in the 90s. And he just could not figure out why we were here. And he had read Hal Lindsey, and he was just certain the rapture was supposed to happen in 1988, and he just couldn't figure out why it hadn't happened. 
And so you can imagine, you know, a student sitting through all that in high school, you're thinking, well, what's the point of the future? I mean, maybe we missed the rapture by a day or two, maybe tomorrow. But what's the future then? I mean, what's my mission in life? In fact, when I was going through university, <clears throat> I got this sort of weird juxtaposition of two ideas. The, the, the world is, is going to end, it's going to end very soon. And then there was a lot of talk about passing the baton to the next generation. Like, you guys go become the next generation of church planners and missionaries, and it's like, well, what's the point? I mean, it's all going to burn, so what's the point? And it was very, very confusing. Now, there was a point in my high school where I just was so terrified of Revelation that I thought, you know what, I, I, better, I, better, get, I better get the victory over this. Because this is part of God's Word. This is part of God's Word. In the ninth grade, I went to my high school football coach. It was a Wednesday night at our church. I actually skipped prayer meeting, and I started talking with them. And I said, could you just help me with this? I'm having lots of doubts and perplexities, and I can't read Revelation and so forth. And I have no idea what he said to me, no recollection whatsoever. But I do know this, that I went and found a quiet room, and for the first time in my life, I opened my Bible to the last book, to Revelation. And I began to read and that night at church, I read the first half. The next morning, I read the second half. And I have never looked at Revelation the same way again. I simply read the text. And I found it so liberating and so encouraging and so wonderful, despite the fact that there are some really hard things in Revelation, are there not? I don't want to give you a Eusebian view of the future, like everything's glowing and beautiful. No, there are hard things in Revelation but you read the Revelation chapter 5, and there's a scroll there that only Christ can unroll. Christ has absolute authority over the future. I mean, no man in heaven, no man on earth can even touch that scroll, even look on it. Jesus has all authority over the future. Why haven't I been told that? And I'll never forget, sitting there that night, and I turned, and I read Revelation, and I got to Revelation 7. Are you in Revelation 7? Revelation 7. And when I read these verses, it was like a light just flipped on in my head. Look at verses 9 through 14. I just want to read the passage really with no comment. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palms, palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. 
They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Friends, that is a story of the Christ who is permanently incarnate himself in the life of humanity. So can we really be encouraged in the year to come? I don't know what 2024 holds. I will make no predictions. Can we be encouraged about the success of the kingdom of God? And as we go to prayer, can we turn back to Matthew chapter 6? Matthew chapter 6. I don't want anyone leaving here today discouraged at all about the year ahead. <clears throat> Would you have guessed a year ago that at this point we'd have another major war going on in Gaza? I would not have guessed that. Nobody knows the future. Let's conclude, though, by giving our attention in prayer. Matthew 6 and verse 33. Jesus has warned his disciples not to be anxious. In fact, look back at verse 25. I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Okay? Do not be anxious about your life. Anybody? All right? What are you supposed to do instead? Look at verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. What things? The basic things you need, like clothing. Seek first the kingdom of God. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. All right? So we go to prayer and just really focus our attention on verse 33 in particular. Seeking first the kingdom of God. As you pray, would you ask that the Lord would really give you help in 2024 to seek first His kingdom? That might involve getting up tomorrow morning and reading your Bible, this plan that you've committed to, and sticking to it. All right? It might involve going out and talking to someone, sharing your faith, because you've made a New Year's resolution to talk to someone, whatever it is, and get, get after it tomorrow morning. Can we do that? Can we take a moment here and just pray for each and every one of us to seek first the kingdom of God in 2024?